Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Christians in America today and in the West, more generally speaking, are facing increasing political and cultural persecution. Now, persecution sounds like a pretty extreme term to use, and I'm not talking about a hardcore violent persecution and even martyrdom like Christians in other parts of the world, say um, Nigeria or China or uh, North Korea, but more like the kind of persecution that writer Rod Dreher calls a soft totalitarianism. In other words, more of a cultural and social and even political persecution. Dreher warns that this persecution is going to become much harder before things get better, and therefore Christians need to begin working now, not only to strengthen their faith personally, but to create networks and communities of like-minded people of faith in order to better survive the difficult times ahead and perhaps even be prepared to face the kind of martyrdom that we see in other countries and under other regimes that don't have our constitutional protections. We're already seeing that sort of thing happening in terms of the government targeting of pro-life protesters, for example. In England, you can be arrested now simply for praying silently in your head somewhere in the vicinity of an abortion clinic. Okay, but what about the kind of persecution that comes from within the church itself? In other words, from church authority. Now, this kind of relates more specifically to Catholics, um, but when is it okay and even obligatory to refuse to obey church authority, the authority of the Pope? And this is a serious question today, because as I think the majority of Catholics would agree— The current pope, Pope Francis, is causing a lot of consternation, to put it mildly, with some of his positions that seem to run counter to traditional Catholicism, such as his embrace of um, LGBT uh, issues and that movement. He's even cracked down on the traditional Latin mass, which has a lot of Catholics very upset, myself included. How are righteously concerned Catholics supposed to resist this? And let me say, why is this important? You may be asking, why should anyone who isn't Catholic even care about this? Well, first of all, the Catholic Church is huge. And uh, as the Pope goes, so the Church goes. And as the Church goes, I believe Western civilization goes. So you may not be a believer, you may not be a Catholic, but what happens in the Catholic Church has a radical impact, I believe, on the course of Western civilization, generally speaking. So, it's a big issue. And the question is, again, are Catholics obliged to obey a pope? What, um, under what circumstances can you reject the pope's authority and stand up and declare that um, he is in error? Well, we're going to talk about that today with my guest who has written a book on the topic. So I urge you to stay tuned. Don't touch that dial because this is going to be a great conversation. today at the Right Take Podcast is Alec Torres, a former speechwriter for former President Trump and a ghostwriter for ambassadors 
national media personalities and business leaders. He's the co-founder of Allograph, a strategic writing, communications, and design firm, and the co-author with Joshua Charles of the brand new book from Sophia Press titled Persecuted from Within, How the Saints Endured Crises in the Church, which we're going to talk about today. Alec Torres, welcome to the Right Take podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. Alec, in America in the 21st century, I think it's easy for people, for most people, to be unaware that Christians are the most persecuted religion worldwide. Now, this is not in any way to diminish the persecution of other faiths. I mean, we're having this conversation, for example, in the wake of the recent ghastly terror attack in Israel that's part of an ongoing religious war against Jews, who obviously have a long history of being targeted for persecution and eradication. But I think a lot of people don't realize that approximately 360 million Christians worldwide face high levels of persecution, including death and martyrdom. Now, in America, the word persecution might seem kind of strong or exaggerated because no one here is being crucified or executed for their faith like the saints of the past whom you profile in your new book. Um, and I think it's difficult for a lot of Christians to accept that more severe levels of persecution might be coming and not feel an urgency about preparing themselves for that and their communities for that. But historically, as you note in your book, all the way back to the original apostles, persecution and martyrdom have just kind of come with the territory for Christians. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's, uh, if you read the Bible, uh, you know, Jesus, he, he doesn't make actually a ton of promises to his disciples, but one of them he does make is that they will be persecuted. Uh, so we, we have to be prepared for it. He said it right from the beginning. It happened to him. Uh, so it's going to happen to his followers, undoubtedly. Well, before we get to some of the specific figures that you profile in your book, let me just ask about a statement that you make. You write, quote, that we are living through a crisis of the church, perhaps unprecedented in history, unquote. Now, considering all the crises that the church has faced in the past, that's pretty strong, a pretty strong statement. What What is that crisis all about today? Well, the crisis in the church today is, I was confirmed in that statement after doing this historical research. Uh, the church has faced many, many crises in the past. You know, it, it tried to be expunged by the Roman Empire, uh, by the French Revolution, uh, by the communist revolutions. Uh, it had fought with emperors and kings. It had gone gotten into bloody wars with Islam and with Protestantism. I mean, there's been there's been grave times of persecution in the church and grave crises within the church. The reason why I argue that this one is is a different than others um, is because of the nature of the crisis. The, the the crisis almost seems to be an existential one internally. It's a crisis of understanding about what it means to be Catholic, what the Catholic Church is, what the Catholic Church does, and what the role of our leaders are. Um, as we saw in crises, as we see in crises in the past, uh, the, the church generally had a good understanding of, of, of who it was, and it was fending off threats that were trying to crush it from without. Uh, but today we, we really do have people fleeing from the pews along with this strange idea that maybe everything that the church was built upon, our doctrine, our magisterium could be changed. Uh, this is unlike anything we've ever really experienced before. And by magisterium, you mean what you mean is the official and um, authoritative teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Is that right? Of course, yeah. And and this is something obviously that cannot be changed. It's the 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 crisis is the one of perception. 
that somehow the faith and morals, the unchanging faith and morals of the church are now up for debate or can, quote unquote, officially be changed in some way. It's a, it's a misconception, but it's one that's causing grave damage in the church today. And would you say that that crisis is related, at least in part, maybe in large part, uh, does that include the current Pope Francis? Because some of his positions seem to have a lot of Catholics um, concerned in terms of his adherence to traditional Catholic um, thinking and theology. For example, he seems to be uh, making efforts to suppress the traditional Latin Mass, for example. But uh, would you say that uh, Pope Francis is is instrumental, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but instrumental in, in this crisis? I would say that he is certainly a participant in it, and and I want to be very guarded in my words here. Um, uh, you know, it, it can be very easy, especially in the social media age. Uh, you know, people people want to take their pot shots very very quickly, uh, and and my, I have to take this from my co-author, but he said it before. How terrible would it be to go to your particular judgment and find out that uh, that you were heading you were heading down instead of up because of a tweet? or, or uh, an off comment you made on a podcast. So w- with the preface that the, that the Pope is our Holy Father, um, I don't think that means that a father is above criticism, uh, but it does mean that when he does have to be criticized or contradicted, it should be done with the utmost degree of charity and uh, uh, goodwill. Um, so all that preface aside, um, I, I, I will not read into his heart, but at a bare minimum, we can look at the consequences of his actions. And he, his style of, of speaking in ways uh, w- that are ambiguous uh, and that allow for um, uh, interpretations of church doctrine contrary to what the truth is, uh, and, and the fact that those who are proposing doctrines contrary to, to the truth, uh, you know, changes to blessings of, of same-sex unions or women's ordination or whatever these matters may be, that others are being allowed to run with this uh, without contradiction from Rome, um, it, you know, that, that, that's a problem because that is part of the job of all of our bishops, especially the Pope, is clarity, clarity in teaching. So when that's lacking, um, it, it, at a bare minimum, it allows for grave problems to happen, even if it isn't proactively willed. Yeah, and I just want to state also at the outset here that— um, this is a topic that should be of interest to more than just Christians or Catholics specifically, because I, I believe as Christianity goes, so goes our civilization. So the decline of Christendom or crises within Christendom, they will impact our culture and our civilization at, in the world at large in very serious ways. Would you agree with that? We've already seen it happening. I, I mean, America is on this road. Europe is further ahead of us for a lot of you know, historical and sociological reasons, but we can see what happens when the moral order uh, disappears and a moral order that can really only be upheld at the bare minimum in the West with the church, uh, but ultimately with God. Um, When that's absent, uh, you know, people do start to just go a little crazy. Uh, It's in Romans, you know, the Lord says that eventually when people turn against him enough that he just leaves them to their sins. And we can see what happens with these uh, disorders, uh, you know, broken families, uh, children raised without fathers, increasing drug use, pornography. I, I mean, the litany of social ills um, just compounds upon itself uh, and eventually can turn even into government suppression and trying to restore the order that's not present within our souls, uh, w- which can very easily become tyrannical. So, so certainly, if there's not a church 
uh, you know, buckle up. It's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, it's a book about persecution, but uh, as you point out, the most painful persecution, the kind that we would feel the most sense of betrayal about is the persecution from within the church itself. Uh, and I'm going to quote you here. You say, in a church beset with declining mass attendance, disturbingly low levels of belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and widespread apathy among Catholics living in open rejection of the church's moral teaching, Rome nonetheless often treats those who are faithful to the full uh, historic magisterium of the church with the greatest harshness. Um, and then you've got, uh, you've devoted... I think about 10 chapters here or so to um, various figures from the past that range all the way from Jesus himself uh, through St. Paul um, and uh, through Joan of Arc, St. Thomas More, um, all the way up to the more, to a more modern figure, Fulton Sheen, Bishop Fulton Sheen. Uh, and then you have a few whom I would call lesser known figures. All of these figures were martyred because of their resistance to church authority. Now, the church preaches obedience, as you uh, explicate in your book, but what does it mean to submit our will and to obey the church hierarchy? And when are we, in fact, you ask these questions specifically at the, in your introduction, I think, when are we allowed to resist? And are we ever obliged to resist? Those are really powerful questions. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Certainly. Uh, th this ended up being the central question of the book, uh, ultimately, when I, when I was looking at the situation and why we wrote this book, I mean, I, I acknowledge freely I'm not a theologian, I'm not a I'm not a bishop or, or a priest, you know, I'm certainly not the pope. Uh, so, so my ability to to comment on these matters, the the um, you know my authority in this is limited. That's why we look to history because I wanted to know how these figures did, uh, how great figures did, not just great, how holy figures did, how those we know are in heaven. So obviously, it's not that everything they did was right. But, but the totality of their lives indicates some sort of alignment with God um, that we should, we should strive to imitate. And uh, th there's a reason it, uh, you know, it had to end up being written in a book. Uh, it was just, it got complicated very quickly. I won't lie about that. Um, I think there are principles that can be drawn from it. But, but when you look at just the raw historical record, um, it can seem very confusing at, at first. You know, why, why does St. Paul in Galatians rebuke St. Peter to his face, as he says, where um, St. Alphonsus Liguri says the will of the Pope is the will of God? Uh, you know, why does, why does Mary MacKillop, um, you know, urge, uh, she's, a, she's a lesser known saint, one from Australia, the first saint from Australia, urge her fellow sisters to never speak in a word against the bishops, um, where St. Bruno uh, actually directly contradicted his own bishop, the Pope, uh, and in, in ways even corrected him on the public stage. Um, th these are tough questions to wrestle with. Uh, and and I, I do urge people to, to go through and, and, and dive in the book with the historical record to wrestle with them. Um, the, the one note I would start with here, since this is a long conversation, is, is that the, the, the primary posture that Catholics take is one of obedience. Um, it is one to mortify the will and to follow our superiors, if only because of how dangerous the sin of pride is and how easy it is to, uh, to slip in. And the context in which obedience to authority is not necessary, uh, which I'm happy to explicate on, uh, are, are rarer 
and uh, and really demand that mortification of the will first. It demands a lot of clarity to get to that point. You write that uh, obedience to God's will is the preeminent virtue, but you also know that Thomas Aquinas points out that we have to distinguish between different types of obedience. Can you speak about that? Yeah, Thomas Aquinas, like, you know, like always, he's just, he, he, he clears things up and, and he labels and orders things very, very well. So, so in his um, rendition of it, there is um, such a thing as disobedience. When you, when you disobey authority that should be obeyed, um, uh, you know, normal obedience, which is essentially where, where you obey necessary obedience, as he calls it, where when you obey when you, when you need to, when you're obligated to. Uh, perfect obedience when you obey, even when it's not necessary, but when it when it mortifies your will and and br- draws you into even greater holiness. Um, you know, an example we give is is a monk uh, in a, in a monastery who is ordered to do something that's not strictly necessary. You know, he's ordered to do some some disgusting chore or something like that, and he, he isn't obligated to do it, but he chooses to do so anyway, uh, following his superior's will uh, as a way to deny himself. Um, so those are the basic forms. Uh, the, the, the one extra one that I think people forget about is, is uh, false obedience. Um, it is to obey an authority, even a proper authority, in a context in which it is not proper to obey. Uh, and St. And Thomas, he breaks down qualifications for when this type of obedience, when false obedience is demonstrated. Um, for our purposes, I, I think the clearest one to see um, for our purposes is when a, an authority demands something that is contrary to God. And, and the principle behind that is that we have to follow authority hierarchically. You know, if, if your, if, uh, you know, your uh, uh, mayor uh, says something and then the governor contradicts them, the governor wins out because the governor is a higher authority. Well, if a bishop orders something and the pope orders something above the bishop, you know, we usually follow the pope. If God orders something above that, well, then God ultimately has to be followed first because God is the ultimate authority. And that's the key, as you note in the book, that's the key to understanding nearly every act of disobedience uh, that you write about in, in, in these profiles in the book, um, that they are contradicting ecclesial authorities because they're convinced that the faith itself is at stake uh, and that they would be violating the will of God if they did not resist. Is that right? Essentially, yes. And, and how that manifests is very, very different. But I, I would add one extra um, uh, piece to understand it. It's, it's contradicting the faith or putting souls at risk in some way. Um, if, if they fear, if these saints fear that something is going to happen, a, a teaching is going to be promulgated, an order is going to be given, that would, uh, you know, in a word, scandalize the little ones to, to pull people away from the true faith. That That is the case too. Uh, because if it's done just against themselves, if it's an injustice just against themselves, then then usually the saints bear it. So it has to be something with external consequences that, that strike at the heart of our of our faith. figures in your book uh, suffered persecution uh, and even martyrdom uh, because they 
they clung to their faith first and uh, and their obedience to God first. You write in here that uh, God allowed his saints to suffer persecution and even a degree of apparent separation from the church, but in every case, his saints were vindicated. The church that rejected her persecuted saints now honors them, which I think is a great uh, point for you to make. Um, l- let's hone in on a couple of them, if we could. Let's talk about Joan of Arc, for example. I think everybody's heard of Joan of Arc, but probably few people know the interesting details. So can we uh, talk about Joan of Arc's story and her obedience, uh, or disobedience, I should say, and persecution? Absolutely. Well, well, this is a great example because that question, obedience or disobedience, really is uh, at the heart of it. Uh, you know, St. Joan of Arc carries the distinction uh, really of two of the saints within the book, but a very few saints within history of being an excommunicated saint. It seems like a contradiction of terms. Uh, and, and, you know, Lord, we pray that we would never face such a trial. But uh, she in her own life was excommunicated. So, so she was born, you know, a, a peasant woman in France during this raging long war between the French and the English, and she had visions. And um, her, her visions were effectively, long story short, to aid France in its battle against uh, the English uh, um, to, to, you know, reestablish the French kingdom, uh, which, as we know from history, I mean, and this was in the heart of the Middle Ages, ended up having profound and wonderful effects for all of Christendom in the world with France's influence on it as a Christian nation, uh, you know, in, in the second millennium after Christ. Uh, but when she, she was captured um, by the English and, and everyone was Catholic at this time. So, so, so it wasn't like there was an Eng- a, a Catholic Protestant divide and uh, they put her on trial uh, under the Bishop um, uh, within that diocese. And, the book details a lot of the back and forth of her trial, looking at the primary sources of what was said and how she responded. And ultimately, they were trying to they were trying to pin her on multiple things to to show that she was, you know, uh, like essentially a witch or or, uh, you know, was seeing demons or or any number of things. Um, but two things shined out in it. Uh, one, despite being a, a pretty much uneducated uh, peasant woman, um, her understanding of the faith and, and complete uh, uh, whole, uh, her, her willingness to just completely cling to Catholic doctrine was demonstrated. She never contradicted the faith. Um, but also her visions, they were, they were coming from God as, as it's demonstrated. I mean, she, she proved it with signs uh, and she refused to contradict them. Uh, when they, when her visions told her not to, not to reveal what she had been told, she refused to do so, even to the bishop. Her understanding being, if these visions came from heaven, they ultimately came from God, and that was a higher authority. Um, so it caused great frustration, I, I, and even more than frustration, anger, bitter anger against her that she would refuse to divulge certain aspects of her conversations with her visions. And, and in the end, I, I mean, based on my reading of the historical situation, that's, that's one of the main reasons why she was put to the stake, why she was condemned as, as a heretic and put to the stake was that she refused to submit in this circumstance to the hierarchy. And you're right that she's the only female saint martyred, or probably the only female saint martyred as a direct result of the actions of the Catholic hierarchy. Do we know of anybody else? That's as far as I'm aware, though. One of the things this book has taught me is that uh, 
you know, I, I thought, you know, persecuted from within, how many saints could, could we find like that? Would it even be worth a book? Is it an essay? And then we realized the list was actually quite long. So who knows? There may be more out there I'm not aware of. Uh, interesting. Well, I think she's a fascinating figure. Um, and it, it was very interesting to read in your uh, in your chapter on her, her thoughtful and clear responses and sort of refusal to say what they tried to get her to say is very, was very impressive. Uh, as you, especially as you noted for an, an uneducated peasant girl. And, and, and to that end too, I, I think she demonstrates something that's very, very important for us to, to remember is that no matter our station in life, we do have an obligation to prepare ourselves mentally, spiritually, uh, for trials like this, you know, uh, yes, the Lord will give us words to say if we face such persecution, um, but we should put in some effort to understand, you know, what is actual Catholic doctrine? Where are the lines? How does authority work? Uh, you know, she she wasn't she did she she may have been uneducated, but she wasn't ignorant. Let's let's also talk about another figure, a man I think is one of the most fascinating figures in history, Saint Thomas More. Uh, I think some people are aware of his, you know, conflict with Henry VIII. They know a little bit about it. And a lot of people have seen the movie A Man for All Seasons, <laughs> which is a great movie, by the way. Uh, but tell us what Thomas More suffered for his uh, commitment to his faith. St. Thomas More is such a wonderful one uh, for for today's age, because ultimately he suffered for the sake of uh, of marriage. Uh, it, it, that's the battle we have today. Um, so when Henry VIII wasn't getting the male heir he desired, he, he divorced his wife. Uh, he, he tried to make arguments that it was, it was proper that the, that the marriage was null and void. Uh, the arguments ultimately didn't, didn't hold mustard, um, uh, didn't pass muster. Uh, and, uh, and he tried to marry somebody else, which, which the church has taught from time immemorial constitutes adultery. Um, doesn't matter if, if, if you're a janitor or a king, adultery is adultery. So the church was very clear on that, that it was not allowed. Um, so Henry, uh, sorry, uh, uh, St. Thomas More was in an extremely unique position because he was both an, a senior advisor to Henry VIII. Uh, you know, a man, a man who had uh, uh, been named defender of the faith by the Pope before he was not, he, he didn't, you know, he wasn't like a born and raised heretic or something like that. He came to it through, through, uh, through essentially through pride and sinful desire. Um, and, and St. Thomas More had to balance his obligation to serve his rightful King and, and his obligation to defend the truths of the faith. And he recognized that just because Henry VIII uh, negated the faith in this circumstance didn't mean that he sacrificed his authority as king. Um, you know, we look at Jesus's time, God put into place uh, Caiaphas, the high priest. He was the one who allowed him to be in power. He, he was the one who allowed Pontius Pilate to be in power, to allow Emperor uh, Augustus to be in power, and yet he submitted himself to them despite the fact that all of them made bad decisions along the way, um, uh, and and you know unjustly condemned him to death in Caiaphas's and Pilate's case. So so Saint Thomas More understood that just because Henry VIII was wrong didn't mean he was no longer king. You can have a bad king who still has the authority. So he spent he spent the last years of his life with great effort and, and, and I mean, just intellectual exertion attempting to balance this, um, essentially speaking with a almost lawyerly silence, uh, 
uh, or uh, uh, yeah, balance. Yeah, balance really is the way uh, to say it uh, of acknowledging when the king had rights, but refusing to ever contradict the faith the whole time. He wanted to be the king's good servant or God, and God's first, as the famous line goes in A Man for All Seasons. Um, and ultimately, he, he couldn't end up playing both. Uh, he couldn't wear both hats at the same time, not because of him, but because Henry wouldn't allow him to. He forced the issue in the end and, and demanded effectively that if St. Thomas More wouldn't affirm the marriage, it wouldn't reject, essentially reject the Catholic faith uh, and the teachings of the Catholic faith, um, then, then that was it. And St. Thomas More said, okay, then, then off to the gallows shall I go. And there's a parallel figure in that chapter uh, who faces the same persecution, Bishop John Fisher. But can you talk about uh, his role in all this? Yes, absolutely, because they they had a dual track, and and it revealed a lot. Again, recognizing that that circumstances can be different in different times, so we have to act with prudence in these things. Where Saint Thomas More was attempting to, you know, uh, not ever contradict the faith while staying obedient to the king to the greatest degree possible. Um, John Fisher, he was he was a bishop, and he recognized that his obligation was actually to preach the clarity of the truth. Um, we, we all have that obligation in a certain way, but, uh, but John Fisher's was, was particularized in being a bishop. You know, his service was more directly to God than St. Thomas More's was hierarchically. So he was very, very vocal in condemning um, the king's actions and calling him to repentance. And he not only did this to the king, he did this in the face of effectively the entire English church turning on him, which meant that that St. Uh, uh, John Fisher was contradicting those within the church who were who were of higher authority than him. Uh, you know, there, there's metropolitans above bishops, you know, who kind of manage multiple bishoprics. And he contradicted his metropolitan. He, he wasn't he wasn't from, you know, Canterbury or anything like that. Uh, he wasn't the he wasn't the most important bishop in the land, yet he knew that his obligation was to preach the truth. Uh, so Henry considered him a, a grave enemy and actually sentenced him to death just as well as St. Thomas More. And yeah, and you write in the book that both men died completely abandoned by nearly everyone of their order, either temporal or spiritual. These traitors, baptized Catholics all, had bended to keep from being broken on earth, but More and Fisher preferred breaking on earth for the sake of standing upright um, in heaven. I think that that's a great, um, that's a great quote from your book. Also, you, and speaking of great quotes, you mentioned something that St. Thomas More wrote, which I was not aware of, but I think this is uh, a great line that sums up a lot of what your book is about. And that quote is that good men should be ashamed to be more timid in good deeds than wicked men are in wicked deeds. Um, what a genius he was! <laughs> yeah, and and how how contrary to the ways of the world too. What what do we see nowadays? Have not people flaunting their wickedness while the good are hiding in the shadows? Oh yes. Uh, <clears throat> let's talk about a more modern figure, of uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen. I remember how popular he was on TV when I was a kid because I'm well, I'm dating myself now, but I go back that far. I remember, and I wasn't even a Catholic then, but he was very popular uh, on TV. Now, Sheen was not martyred, but he has an interesting story. Tell us about the persecution that he faced. 
Yeah, and I, I'm a bit younger, but Sheen is still very popular on social media. You see his videos floating around the Catholic world quite a bit. So, you know, he hasn't lost his luster in that regard. Um, so Sheen's case uh, uh, is, um, I found it helpful in multiple ways. One, he did demonstrate great grace in his trial, um, a wonderful silence. Uh, and a willingness to endure a very personal injustice done against him that did not threaten the faith of others. So he bore it uh, with uh, equanimity and, like I said, with silence. But also it's very helpful in that it happened, his persecution happened for the most inane of reasons. Um, I'll get into that in just a moment, but but it's it's a good thing to remember that sometimes, yes, we can be called to account for the faith. We can die for the sake of the perennial teaching of marriage, or on the, for the sake of, you know, visions from God, you know, things like that. Or other times, as in Bishop Fulton Sheen's case, we can be persecuted for milk money. Uh, so what happened with Bishop Sheen was he was running something called the Society of the Propagation of Faith, uh, which doled out charitable contributions. Um, technically, he wasn't running it, but in the post-war, post-World War II world, America, he was the representative from America, and America just had a lot more money uh, than, than everyone else. Um, so, uh, in that role, uh, he would get contributions, distribute them to the poor. Uh, well, Cardinal Spellman, his Cardinal in New York, uh, his direct superior, uh, was given money. It was given, sorry, dried milk from the federal government in order to distribute to the poor. This wasn't an uncommon thing back then. Um, Bishop, uh, sorry, Cardinal Spellman gave that to Bishop Sheen. And then he told Bishop Sheen, okay, now pay me for the milk. You owe me. <laughs> And Bishop Sheen said, no, uh, you didn't pay for the milk. I'm not going to use money meant for the poor to pay you for the milk. And the, it got into this, you know, kind of like elementary school spat. It happened to be over millions of dollars, but still over milk money. Um, and because because it was a spat between a cardinal and a bishop, there's there was only one authority who could, uh, uh, you know, work between them. And that was the pope. Uh, so it went all the way up to Rome to the Pope. Um, and I mean, gosh, pray for your Bishop, pay for your Pope. We know they have to deal with all sorts of terrible things, but they also just have to deal with a lot of very, very stupid things. And we have no idea what, what level of patience they must have to exercise in this. So the, you know, the Pope looks at it and says, you have the receipts. Like I, this is very clear. Uh, Bishop Sheen's in the right. And, you know, please, you know, leave my office and, and you know, act like adults. Uh, I'm adding that line in there. I'd hate to speak for the Pope, but I have to imagine that's probably what he was thinking. And the Cardinal was just livid. You know, he, he, he hated the fact that Bishop Sheen had contradicted him uh, and that it had led to his embarrassment, even of his own making before the Pope. So he vowed revenge and he, and he got it. It took 10 years, but he got it. Uh, Bishop Sheen was removed from his TV show. Um, the rumors were that that Cardinal Spellman had a hand in it. He was removed from his position at the Society for the Propagation of Faith. Uh, let's just say it was not because he was failing to raise money. He was he was maybe will be the best fundraiser in history. Uh, and and eventually, and this could not have happened without Cardinal Spellman's direct involvement. He was sent from New York City to the Diocese of Rochester. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with small diocese. I, I live in a small diocese in Fort Worth, Texas now. Uh, but it was a place that was utterly unsuited for Bishop Sheen's talents. He, he went from being, you know, an Emmy winner, cover of Time magazine, raising millions of dollars for the poor, 
you know, uh, converting high profile people in New York and Washington and all this place to running the Diocese of Rochester, where, where I mean, just a few data points here. At one point, a, a mob of, of, of his of his own uh, uh, people, uh, of, of Catholics within the diocese, surrounded his car protesting a decision he make he made. And on another occasion, something like half of the priests in his diocese actually wrote an open letter against him. Um, he, he was a bishop, mind you, there for, for less than three years. So, so things descended very quickly. But he suffered all of that uh, for, for something ultimately that seems trivial. To his credit, he kept all of this very quiet and did not make a public scene or make his disobedience a public issue. Even even more so, he, he steadfastly refused. Yeah, he, 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 it, it'd be one thing to simply be silent, right? Um, and and in, in that type of circumstance, silent is almost like the, the, the sort of cold resignation of a Catholic who, who wants to carry their cross, gritting it and dragging it across the finish line. Uh, as opposed to something born with love, a cross born with love, as we as you know, we, we reflect upon Christ sweetly holding the cross and looking upon it as the means towards salvation, and that's what Sheen did when when they were doing a press conference, sending uh, you know with, it was Spellman and Sheen sending Sheen off to his new assignment, removing him from the place where he had a golden touch and everything worked. Sheen smiled, uh, thanked the cardinal, was very gracious, said he looked forward to the assignment. And by all accounts, it, it really did seem genuine. He was trying to embrace it to the greatest degree possible. Uh, all the way to the end of his life, when he wrote his autobiography, which is brimming with honesty about himself and about the world, he mentions this, this battle with Cardinal Spellman in only the most oblique of ways, essentially saying he knows everyone wants him to talk about it. He knows the media would love for him to rip open old wounds. Um, but he's going to stay silent for the sake of the church and because bringing it out in the open in that circumstance would have helped no one. Is there one, Is there a chapter in particular or a saint in particular in this book that spoke to you personally or a chapter that you uh, felt more uh, compelled by or engaged in than any of the others? Well, yeah, it, it is a little difficult, and I have to admit it's a strange experience since I did co-author it. So, so some of them I didn't, uh, I didn't take the lead hand in writing. We obviously worked on it all together, uh, and then I've grown to love saints that I wasn't even the primary one researching and writing about, uh, and and then others I, I just spent time in. Um, I would love to talk about some of the lesser known saints, but unfortunately, I am going to end up choosing one whom everybody knows, uh, which is Padre Pio. Uh, something about reading his, his actual letters um, and, and reading biographies of him and how he responded. Something that's shown uh, for me in, in Padre Pio was that he's, he's so well known for his miracles, for bilocating, for reading people's hearts in the confessional, you know, for levitating, for having actual physical fights with demons. I, I mean, it's the 20th century, the age of rising secularism and militant communism. And, and he's over in Italy just having, you know, one of the most mystical lives uh, in human history. And yet his, his true glory was actually in, in the mundane and the prosaic. Uh, it, it, was, it was in his endurance of grave injustice done against him, essentially of, of skeptics of, of, uh, you know, people in the hierarchy who were skeptical of him, um, and bearing it with such grace and equanimity, uh, that, uh, for, for, for a decade at a time, 
I, that I think sh- made his holiness even more apparent than anything miraculous. Uh, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful testament. I found myself wondering while reading that, you know, I'm reading about him. Okay, well, they don't believe his stigmata are real. They believe he's a crook and a quack. And now he can't hear confessions. And now he can't celebrate mass in public. And now he's banned from talking with his, his best friend and spiritual director. And now he's prevented from speaking with lay people. And, and all these restrictions pile on. And I start to think to myself, and this is year after year after year, I think to myself, could I ever have done that? Could I have ever done that with the degree of love that he still had for his superiors? Could I, could I have done that? And then at the end, it still says, sweet is the hand of the church, even when she strikes us. And, and I admit to myself that I couldn't, not, not now, not at least without a massive infusion of grace. I pray that I'd have the will to accept it. Um, but Padre Pio did have this miraculous life, but he was flesh and blood like all of us. Uh, you know, it, it, the only reason... Uh, you know, God may not call us to such greatness. That might not be our position, but he certainly calls us to such perfection. And also, I didn't mean to neglect uh, your chapter on Jesus himself. <laughs> which, <laughs> which, uh, last but not least. Well, well, of course, of course, we put Jesus right up front because it frames everything. Um, he, his life frames everything. And, and ultimately, every single story of the saints, it's it's almost... It's almost as if Jesus is is the same is the picture. He is the form. He is what we are to look at. And the saints provide these these more in depth studies of certain aspects of Jesus's life. Uh, they they allow us to see it in a particular light or color that was already there, uh, uh, but but in a way that is sometimes more more intelligible to us or more approachable to us. It's one of the gifts that Jesus gives in his humility that he allows others to exemplify him him and his life, even beyond himself, so that we can find him through others. Uh, but with Jesus, it's all there. And and we don't have to look far to see that Jesus himself was persecuted by his religious leaders, um, that, that he was unjustly condemned, that he bore it with silence. Um, and yet, only, only when, that was done, when that injustice was done against himself, that when it came to his father and his father's house, uh, he acted with a righteous anger. And, and was so firm uh, in, in defending the truths of the faith. Uh, I mean, the truth of himself, not the faith at that point, but but just who he he is and remains. Um, so if, if you ever if you ever wonder how 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 could God let this happen to us? Why would God let such terrible things happen to good people? Why would God allow for such confusion? Why would God allow for us to be betrayed by those very people in power whom we're supposed to to trust? Well, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a, as comforting of an answer, but it's the real one is that he allowed it to be done to himself first. Uh, and we see it in each stage of his life. Uh, now, now, your book is about, as I've mentioned before, and as we've been talking about, about relatively well-known, some very well-known historical figures and uh, saints. The average person reading this, what what would you like for the average person or a person who considers himself or herself to be just an average person? Uh, what would you like them to take away, the message that you'd like them to take away from the stories of all of these saints and martyrs for, the, for their own lives? Uh, yeah, certainly. It, it, well, I mean, persecuted from within, you know, the name of the book, it kind of, it, it's, it confronts people with the fact that that this isn't new, that being persecuted by our leaders isn't new. So there's several things I'd want people to take away from that. 
is one, when we see things that are scandalous and wrong and in error, wh whether it's abuse against minors, incorrect doctrine, um, abuses of the Eucharist or the liturgy or anything like that, that it's, it's okay to acknowledge that. There's nothing disobedient about that. Um, and, and that we should be able to correct such things. Uh, uh, and we should have the formation to be able to do that well and with charity and with clarity. Um, and also that none of that, none of these things that happen contradict the church. None, it's not just because it's, it's happening now. I mean, it's not new, uh, in many ways. So if you're starting to lose faith over it, or if you're wondering how these bold claims about the church being inerrant and pure and the bride of Christ can be true when it's so filled with sinful people, know that that has been the case from the beginning, but that God through the work of the Holy Spirit has guided his church through every single time, whether they knew how or not, in situations that seemed even more hopeless than our own in many ways, he still guided us through. So, so we have to have faith, which means finally that, that the way we get through uh, is, is to act as these saints did, is, is through our own perfection. With, with through God's grace to achieve our own perfection, to become the saints of our time, uh, as you said in the beginning of this. And every one of us has the power to do that. Not, not of our own power, but from God, through our baptism and through the graces of the sacraments, through prayer, through study of the scriptures, through, through the rosary, through, through corresponding with God's grace. We, we can become the saints of our own time too and be the very ones that future generations would write about in their books like this to show their own times to not lose faith, because we found a way through too. Listeners, again, the book we've been talking about today is Persecuted from Within, How the Saints Endured Crises in the Church by Alec Torres and Joshua Charles. And I really urge you to get it because, as I mentioned before, uh, whether you're a believer or not, as Christianity goes, so goes our civilization. So it's an issue and a topic of concern to everybody. Uh, Alec, I hope you'll write more on this or related themes. Are you working on something new or you and your co-author, Joshua Charles? Um, we are, we are. Uh, now I'm a ghost, we're both ghost writers by training. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a little unique for us to come out with something public. I think it shows how strongly we feel about it. Um, I do urge people to go and look for Josh Charles, Joshua Charles online. He regularly writes on theology and he explicates the church fathers. That was his journey to conversion. And, and there's so much clarity and wisdom to be found there. So that, that's a big project he's been working on. And if you find his work online, particularly on, on Twitter, um, that'll help you there. Uh, uh, my work, un unfortunately, all I can say is that more will be coming, but you may not know it was me. So if, if the <laughs> Lord calls me to be public again, uh, if, if he deems me to, to, to come out of my hermit's cave uh, uh, and, and do such things, I will. Uh, otherwise, I'll, I'll enjoy working in the shadows and, and doing what I can from behind the scenes. Great. Well, keep up the good work. Alec Torres, thanks for coming on The Right Take, and thanks for the book. Thank you so much. I appreciate your having me on. Listeners, thank you again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so you can keep up with all the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. Thanks and be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.